Part two of Europe in the Middle of the Seventeenth Century by Martin Philipson from the History of All Nations from Earliest Times, Volume thirteen, The Age of Louis the Fourteenth, translated under the supervision of John Henry Wright. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Piotr Natter. Italy was, in many respects, in political dependence on Spain, and yet the two countries were very different from each other in their intellectual and social development. The victory of the exclusive and persecuting party in the Catholic Church had indeed impeded the intellectual advance of Italy, but had not fully checked it. For this the country was mainly indebted to the growing mildness of disposition, especially among the better orders which imperceptibly removed their weapons from the hands of the inquisitors after a moment of grim and bloody reaction the whole nation even the priesthood gave itself up too completely to the soft charms of art and poetry to think any longer of heresy hunts and autos da fe the fact too that the petty tyrants gradually disappeared and made room for an ampler national life in which truer ideas of statesmanship were comprehended and realized contributed still further to humanize popular manners though criticism of religion and the state was severely punished intellectual and spiritual development was not systematically restricted as in spain but was instead fostered under the sure but mild guardianship of laws impartially dispensed and observed by absolute but not despotic rulers the whole people even the very poorest and most ignorant were carried away with enthusiasm over the productions of the great poets and artists of the sixteenth century and promised their successors honour and wealth when the dread of a great franco-spanish war vanished on the death of henry the fourth of france and the peace-loving philip the third ruled in spain a period of quiet and happy development seemed to dawn for italy even the spanish administration in naples under lemos and osuna encouraged study the university of that city enlarged and improved by accession of professors from all the rest of italy once more acquired an authoritative place in the domain of learning the hope of such a period of peaceful prosperity was not fully realized the restless ambitions of charles emmanuel of savoy the long-protracted Valtellina affair, and later the war for the Mantuan succession, disturbed the repose of North Italy, but Central and Lower Italy enjoyed nearly a half-century of peace, which was rarely broken. The only person who occasionally interrupted this condition was Urban VIII, who seemed to desire to revive the papal policy of the first half of the sixteenth century. He combated the German and Spanish Habsburgs, though they were the champions of catholicism against heresy an open rapture occurred on this point in the college of cardinals and amid the applause of the gathering a borgia was bold enough to charge the pope with religious indifference a charge echoed by the outer world his nepotism too was notorious many balls of his predecessors forbade the endowment of relatives of the pope with principalities and other high offices at the cost of the church nevertheless the barberini were now laden with such dignities and with unmeasured wealth with their greatly swollen revenues the relatives of urban the eighth were able to purchase the ancient fiefs of the colonna orsini sforza and other illustrious families with a view to prolonging the influence of his kin beyond his own life 
Urban conferred on them 42 cardinalates. Finally, that nothing might be wanting to recall conditions so little in accord with the age, Urban VIII, like an Alexander VI or a Julius II, again took up the plan of conquering the world. Of all the principalities that had been carved out of the states of the church, everyone had been reabsorbed, save only Urbino, of which the Della Rovere, the family of Julius II, were rulers. Their sway was mild and favorable to art. Here Raphael had been born and received his initiation into art. Bembo had taken up his abode here, and on the little Umbrian state there still lingered, as it were, the afterglow of the sixteenth century. Duke Francis Maria II, now old and childless, could no longer offer effectual resistance to Urban when he demanded the admission of papal troops into his fortresses. When the prince died in 1631, the church forthwith took possession of the land, much to the sorrow of its inhabitants. This success emboldened Urban to proceed with open violence against another family, which owed its position to papal nepotism, the Farnese. This race, descended from Pope Paul III, ruled over not a papal but an imperial fief, namely Parma. Duke Odoardo, a coarse, passionate, and unpopular man, held also the Duchy of Castro in the states of the Church. The Barberini craved it, while the Pope hoped to unite Parma and Piacenza with the states of the Church. Under entirely frivolous pretexts, his soldiers in 1641 occupied Castro, and in 1642 Urban put the Duke under the ban of the Church. But Odoardo Farnese found support in the other Italian princes, who for a long time had been incensed over the grasping policy of the Holy See. There was scarcely a state that Urban had not, in his arrogance, insulted. But a short time before, he had laid the senators of the peaceful little Republic of Lucca under excommunication, because it had dared to punish with imprisonment the robber brother of a cardinal. The Republic had turned for protection to the Grand Duke of Tuscany. This prince, Cosmo II, was resolved to endure no further act of violence on the part of the pontiff, and organized an alliance for the protection of the Farnese, of which the Este of Modena, as well as Venice, were members. War broke out between these secular powers and the head of the church. Urban VIII, however, in the spring of 1644, was ready to sign a disadvantageous peace, which set Odoardo free from excommunication and replaced him in Castro. This humiliating defeat showed the weakness of the power of the Pope, who soon afterward, in July 1644, died. The situation was but little improved. Under his successor, Innocent X, the Barberini, notwithstanding the number of their creatures, were unable to procure the choice of one of their own family by the conclave, and had therefore consented to the election of Giovanni Battista Pamphili, which, from the slight importance of his family, and from his age, seventy-two years, seemed to imply no menace. But the family of the new pope, precisely on the account of their lowly condition, were determined to enrich themselves as quickly as possible, and this could best be effected at the cost of the universally hated Barberini, who therefore had to leave Rome, their offices, palaces, and wealth, as a prey to the new house. As they had favored France, the new government took the side of Spain, and a complete change of policy was the consequence. A reconciliation was effected with the Italian states, especially with Venice and the Medici, but the internal misrule remained unchanged. 
Personally, Innocent X was honourable, well-meaning, and industrious, and earnestly sought to restore order and justice in his dominions. But he was weak with age, and so completely subservient to his relatives, that nepotism under him was as scandalous as under his predecessor. Only one ray of fortune gilded his rule. Odoardo Farnese so misused his success in regard to Castro, and made himself so universally hated, that Innocent was able to take forcible possession of the contested fief without the new duke, Ranuncio II, finding any support in the other Italian princes. Otherwise, the grey-haired pontiff was so afflicted and perpetually irritated by the turmoils and unseemly dealings of his family as to become a burden both to himself and to others. Innocent died in 1655, to his own relief, and that of all the world. Under such popes the high office conferred little authority, whether ecclesiastical or political. The great religious wars had been decided without the cooperation of the popes, nay, almost contrary to their wishes. The papal administration was wretched. Debts were so enormous that the interest upon them swallowed up the whole income of the papal states, so that the cost of the court, the executive, and the army had to be met by the pope's ecclesiastical income and constant new loans. The nobles, once warlike and fired with the spirit of enterprise, were now utterly effeminate and cared only for pomp, titles, magnificent palaces, and multitudes of idle servants. Such extravagances had lessened power and multiplied debts. The old medieval families were thrust more and more into the background before the papal families of plebeian origin, the Borghese, Chigi, Pamfili, and Barberini. These led a brilliant life in the capital, constituted a formal court, set the fashion for Rome, and exercised the most important influence in the election of new popes. The government of the church was, in consequence, more uniform, milder, weaker, and more inclined to peace. Of the other Italian states, Tuscany, in its peaceful and uneventful quietude, comes scarcely at all into notice, Genoa but little, Venice somewhat more, Savoy most of all. The Republic of Genoa had, through the reform measures of 1575 and 1576, acquired a degree of freedom such as was scarcely to be found elsewhere in Europe. The privileged classes had become so comprehensive as to include every well-to-do citizen. The power of the different magistracies was accurately defined. Personal freedom and liberty of speech were practically unlimited. But the Genoese government seemed to have abrogated tyranny and exclusive privileges only to fall into lethargy and weakness. A revolt of the Popolani, the democracy, was planned in 1628 with the connivance of and with promises of help from Duke Charles Emmanuel of Savoy, their aim being the murder of the Senate and nobles and the establishment of a thoroughly democratic regime. But the conspiracy was discovered shortly before the contemplated outbreak and punished by the execution of the ringleaders. One can still see, running in a wide curve along the heights which enclose the city, the powerful forts then erected for the defense against the Savoyard. Shortly afterward, peace was restored, and for half a century, Genoa was at liberty to engage in commerce and financial transactions in perfect peace. Venice had so far as possible maintained its policy of peace, but was always opposed to its three ancient adversaries, the Church, the House of Habsburg, and the Turks. The papacy, by repeated illegal demands, 
caused constant friction with the Venetian authorities. The chief sensation was caused by the murderous assaults made on Fra Paolo Sarpi, the undaunted Servite monk, who had fearlessly come forward as the champion of national independence against papal aggrandizement, and had been the ecclesiastical counsellor of the Senate in its strifes in the years 1606 and 1607. In October 1607, the daggers of the assassins actually struck him, but he did not receive a mortal wound. As the assassins escaped the states of the church, and there went about, not only unmolested, but boasting of their deed, people agreed with Sarpi himself in thinking that this was perpetrated still Romane Curie, with the stylus, dagger, of the Roman Curia. The Venetian Senate protected and honoured its theologian after his recovery, a course of action which again gave great offence in Rome. Sarpi died in 1623. Venice seemed to be still more seriously threatened by the machinations of Spain. The House of Habsburg had good ground for being displeased with the Republic, which had for years carried on war with the rulers of Austria on account of the frontier district, Friuli, and had besides made it possible, through subsidies, for the Duke of Savoy to defend himself against the assaults of Spain in 1616 and 1617. In September of the latter year, a general peace had been concluded. A Spanish dignitary soon appeared, however, who endeavoured to nullify the effects of the treaty. This was Duke of Osuna, Viceroy of Naples, who was assured of the protection of the then all-powerful minister Uceda. He maintained, at the expense of the poor Neapolitans, a considerable force, and built in hot haste a large fleet. From all sides Venice had warning that Osuna had designs upon her. One of Osuna's officials had repeatedly exclaimed, quote, This year the Venetians will receive the finest drubbing. End quote. At length Osuna sent a number of warships under his own flag into the Adriatic, a sea that the Venetians had been wont to regard as a part of their dominions. It was maintained that he would have landed troops in the city had not the premature disclosure of his plan prevented its accomplishment. Meanwhile, a pirate from Normandy, by the name of Jacob Pierre, had gone over from the Neapolitan service to the Venetian, and had, by pretending to reveal Osuna's secret plans, endeavoured to secure an important position for himself. But he was suspected of being in collusion with Osuna, and his communication was regarded as designed to deceive the signori. The suspicion was well founded, for Pierre had recruited numerous mercenaries who were to rise as soon as the fleet appeared at the mouth of the lagoon. The whole scheme was completely foiled. First, Osuna's fleet, which attacked the Venetian fleet in time of peace, was utterly defeated near Santa Croce. Then, some of the parties to the plot disclosed it to the Venetian authorities. The ringleaders were arrested, May 1618, whereupon hundreds of their accomplices fled to Naples. The Spanish government desired to disavow Osuna's schemes, now that they had failed, and he was recalled. Deeply moved at seeing his hopes thus shattered, the Duke resolved on resistance and on making himself independent in Naples. With a view to gaining support, he attempted, in 1620, to form an alliance with the Republic whose ruin he had vowed. Venice would have nothing to do with his intrigues, and Osuna, deserted by his soldiers, had to take ship for Spain, where he was cast into prison, and where he died four years later. 
In Venice no one believed in the non-complicity of Spain, and the Republic opposed both the Spaniards and the Emperor in the Mantuan War of Succession in 1628, but very ineffectively. Gustavus Adolphus received from her a subsidy against the Emperor, but in the following Franco-Spanish contest she deemed it more prudent to maintain a discreet neutrality. The circumstances prompted this policy. First, the Turkish War, next the ever-increasing disintegration in the venetian state the reciprocal plunderings and conflicts of the ships of the barbary powers on the one hand and those of malta and leghorn on the other were constantly producing complications from which venice on account of her possessions and garrisons in crete and the archipelago could not keep herself free in the spring of sixteen forty five over fifty thousand turks landed in crete and began the conquest of the rich island. The fleets which the Italian states sent to its relief showed themselves as unwarlike and cowardly as the Italian armies of the period. The mercenaries of the Republic, on the other hand, mostly Germans and French, fought with determined courage, and delayed for twenty-two years the surrender of the besieged capital, Candia. The long and embittered struggle scarcely did more to weaken the Republic than the corruption which ate deeper and deeper into its heart. Failing means, with growing luxury, increasing effeminacy, and the spread of unmanly and unpatriotic sentiments combined to introduce a spirit of venality, treachery, and mistrust among the leading nobles themselves, which threatened the very existence of the state founded on this aristocracy. Elections were now determined not by merit but by bribery, so that the public offices fell more and more exclusively into the hands of a few rich families. Several of the highest officials of the state were convicted of participation in Osuna's plot, and executed or sent to prolonged imprisonment. Besides well-grounded accusations, denunciations of innocent people from hate or avidity were frequent, and often led to their unjust condemnation. Under these conditions, the prestige of the Republic necessarily waned, and its administration became more and more corrupt. The most famous among these false accusations was that which caused the death of Antonio Foscarini. This man, descended from one of the most respected patrician families of the city, after completing an excellent course of study, served his country in several important offices. While ambassador to England, he fell into strife with his secretary, Muscorno, a vain, ambitious man who wished to be ambassador himself. Since Foscarini would not give way to him, Muscorno went to Venice and accused the ambassador of dishonorable and treacherous conduct. Foscarini was recalled, put to trial, but after three years was acquitted. His calumniator was condemned to two years' confinement in a fortress. Foscarini seemed fully cleared of suspicion. He became a senator and was again entrusted with important political negotiations. But scarcely was Muscorno at liberty when, with a hatred quickened by the thirst of revenge, he began again to labor for the ruin of his enemy, and this time with success. He made use of Foscarini's intimate relations with an English woman of high rank, the Countess of Arundel, whose house was a rendezvous for diplomatists, to accuse him of entering into traitorous correspondence with foreign powers through intermediaries. Since Foscarini would not acknowledge any intimate relations with the countess, he would not satisfactorily account for his frequent secret visits to her house, and he was condemned and hanged. Four months later his innocence was proved. 
His main accuser, a certain Vano, with one of his accomplices, suffered death, and the memory of Foscarini was, with much formal ceremony, pronounced unsullied. This melancholy event diminished the prestige of the ruling families and made evident the necessity of radical reforms. But when it came to the inauguration of real reforms, and more particularly to the limitation of the power of the Council of Ten, the influence of the great families was ultimately strong enough to frustrate any attempts at a change for the better. Discontent and the spirit of rebellion were the unavoidable consequences. Much sadder was the fate of Savoy, torn by internal and by foreign war. Under Charles Emmanuel I, this duchy had played an important part, and just for this reason both France and Spain were eager to make themselves masters of the land that commanded the Alpine passes between France and Italy. With this aim they availed themselves of the strife over the regency, which broke out in 1637 on the death of Charles Emmanuel's son and successor, Victor Amadeus I, who had left only a minor son. According to the duke's will, the regency was to be conducted by his widow, Christine, sister of Louis XIII, but as she, a foreigner and a Frenchwoman, was unpopular, her brother-in-law, Cardinal Maurice, and Prince Thomas sought to exclude her from the government. If the princess held the office, Richelieu would be master of Savoy and Piemont. If, however, the two princes, both of whom were in Spanish pay, obtained it, Olivares would gain these provinces for his country. Prince Thomas, with Spanish help, took possession of the capital, Turin. The cardinal occupied the country of Nice, while Christine, along with the young duke, Charles Emmanuel II, held court in Chambéry. Christine then went to Grenoble to meet Louis and Richelieu and entreat them for help. They sent Count Arcourt to Piemont. Meanwhile, Leganes, the Spanish governor of Milan, entered the unfortunate land and wasted and plundered it, 1638. Arcour defeated his enemy at Casale and undertook the siege of Turin, whose inhabitants bitterly hated the French and defended themselves gallantly. At length Leganes came to their aid, but all his attempts to storm Arcour's camp failed. Famine finally compelled the surrender of the city after a memorable defense of sixteen months, September 1640. Christine returned to Turin, where the French at once inaugurated a reign of terror for all their adversaries. Meanwhile, the war continued for several years, and with great injury to the country. The two princes saw this with sorrow, and were forced to recognize that Savoy was treated only as a tool by the rival contestants, whose sole aim was their own interests. In 1642, therefore, they submitted to their sister-in-law, who granted them their positions as governors, as well as a certain degree of cooperation in public affairs. The Spaniards were driven from one after another of the fortresses which they held in Piemont. The land was left in the most wretched condition, and, what its people felt most keenly of all, in complete dependence on France. Thus did Italy become more and more the battlefield and the spoil of the Habsburgs and Bourbons. The political and military decadence of Italy in the first half of the 17th century was reflected in its literature. The authors of this period are far from possessing the power and dignity of their predecessors. Their type was a Neapolitan, Giovanni Battista Marini, 1569-1622. Only a few years before his death, he published his great work, Adonis, 
a needlessly long amatory poem of forty five thousand verses as the subject matter is effeminate so the treatment is characterized by a mawkish sweetness and a straining after effect by means of florid hyperbole and overstrained imagery that in spite of the beauty of isolated passages make it intolerable to the modern reader mariniism had been charged with being the cause of similar sins in non-italian authors but without foundation the degeneracy and departure from nature characteristic of the seventeenth century everywhere produced the same results in foreign lands as in italy among his compatriots barini's poetry met with enthusiastic acceptance as evidence of how exactly it was in harmony with the tastes of the time the old heroic poems the poetical romances of chivalry on the other hand had lost favour with the public this perversion of taste alessandro tassoni lashes with pungent satire in his rape of the bucket a comic epic of inexhaustible and unoffensive wit he gives us a caricature of the wars that the italian states so often carried on with one another furnishing as it were a prototype of the war of castro gabriel cabrera of savona fifteen fifty two to sixteen thirty seven belongs both in point of time and in the bent of his genius to the sixteenth century a profound scholar and an ardent admirer of the antique he knew how to transform the old in accordance with modern italian ideas he shows to best advantage in his lyrics in which he frees himself from the hitherto exclusively dominant petrarchian type and is in a truly original manner both novel and sublime in boldness of imaginative power in lofty flights of genius in freedom and diversity of form he has had no equal in his native land until the nineteenth century but he had no imitators in his own age the fashion favoured marini the style of elegant prose literature was equally affected by the depraved taste of the times it would indeed be difficult to name here a single original book of permanent value letters however on the most varied political social and intellectual questions were then much in favour and the collections of those of cardinal bentivoglio a distinguished statesman and historian and of the renowned galileo are worthy of mention boccalini's satire miscellanies from parnassus is a racy booklet that in its day enjoyed great popularity highly characteristic of the humane but effeminate italian of his epoch is his outburst against the military spirit and the usages of war war he says is sometimes necessary but it is yet a condition so inhuman and barbarous that there are no fine words that can make it tolerable boccalini was an enthusiastic republican and therefore lords venice while he scourges with bitter irony the petty princely tyrants of his time in his touchstone he develops his political sentiments still more trenchantly and in doing so sheds a clear light on contemporaneous public opinion in italy he gives undisguised and wrathful expression to the hatred of all italians for spanish domination for the court of the catholic king and for his subjects arrogant lust for conquest and ascendancy the italy of our epoch boasts of two admirable historical works bentivoglio's history of the war in the netherlands and davila's civil war in france both writers show the same sobriety of judgment and appropriate style and method that distinguished the great italian historians of the sixteenth century both were intimately acquainted with the lands of which they wrote 
Bentivoglio had resided as papal nuncio in Brussels and Paris. Davila had held important military and political posts in France and Venice. Passing from practical to theoretical politicians, we come to the name of Thomas Campanella. This philosophical Dominican monk, persecuted both by the Spanish government and the Inquisition, wrote a treatise on the state, which, along with much eulogy of the papal and French courts, contains many sound observation. His City of the Sun is a fantastic sort of political and social utopia, based in many parts on the Platonic model, but permeated with his own chimerical and mystical philosophy. Hunted incessantly by his numerous foes, this gifted monk died in 1639, in the retirement of the monastery. Much more practical than Campanella was Antonio Serra, whose work on the causes of wealth in gold and silver is a work of political economy of high value for the history of this science. It comprises a complete exposition of the so-called mercantile system, which later, through Colbert's example, prevailed throughout Europe for more than a century. This system lays the main stress on manufacturers and commerce, which it holds to be much more susceptible of development than agriculture, and which therefore ought to be fostered at the expense of the latter. Serra's book, 1613, had great influence on the economical and financial opinions of the day. His ideal was the state of Venice, wealthy because it was an exclusively commercial city, as contrasted with poor agricultural Naples. In the exact sciences, Italy contended for the foremost place with Germany, which could boast of her Copernicus and Kepler. Cavalieri, professor of mathematics in Bologna, carried the mathematical ideas suggested by the latter great scholar still farther, and through his work on the Geometry of the Indivisibles, 1635, became the father of modern geometry. By this method he attained much more precise determinations and measurements than had been possible before. Aldrovandi summed up the whole zoological knowledge of his time in comprehensive handbooks. Caspar Aselli, professor of anatomy in Pavia, discovered the lacteals of the mesentery that convey the chyle to the blood, and thus play an important part in the alimentation of the animal body. But the most eminent, most gifted, and most renowned figure in Italian science was Galileo Galilei. Born at Pisa in 1564, the son of an able mathematician, he studied medicine in his native city, but soon turned to mathematical and physical studies, seeking for these a firm and reliable foundation in mathematics. A remarkable faculty of observation, an acute judgment, and an intellect at once profound and clear, united to qualify him for making his amazing discoveries. The oscillations of a lamp suspended from the dome of the cathedral at Pisa led to the discovery of the equal duration of the oscillations of a pendulum, and with this he associated the most interesting investigations concerning the center of gravity of bodies. One of the first fruits of his labors was the invention of the hydrostatic balance, by which he determined the specific gravity of bodies. His most important discoveries were made after he had exchanged the mathematical chair of Pisa for that of Padua. Here his contributions to science were the thermometer, a proportional compass or sector, and the refracting telescope for astronomical investigations, 1609. Imperfect as was Galileo's telescope, chiefly from the limited extent of its field, 
the great man was yet able to make the most astonishing observations with it he recognized the inequalities on the moon's surface and rightly attributed these to mountains he even made approximate calculations of their height further he resolved the milky way and certain other nebulae into multitudes of suns massed in special points of the firmament he detected four little stars in the neighborhood of jupiter and rightly determined them to be satellites of the great planets these surprising discoveries he announced in a book which justly bore the title of nuncius siderus the starry messenger men at this time took the liveliest interest in astronomy partly because the theories and writings of copernicus and kepler had aroused their curiosity but probably more because the science was so intimately associated with astrology the nuncius siderus attracted universal attention and the grand duke of tuscany by rewarding its author with the richly endowed sinecure of court mathematician made it possible for galileo to devote himself in florence exclusively to his studies his astronomical discoveries now followed in rapid succession one of the principal being the earth-like character of the planets as opposed to the solar nature of the fixed stars galileo's telescopic observations had fully convinced him of the absolute correctness of the copernican theory of the universe his advocacy of this brought the wrath of the church upon his head for it had denounced the copernican system as heretical galileo offered to prove that this system was in perfect harmony with orthodoxy but this attempt to compel the church to submission in her own domain only served to embitter her more through personal exertions in rome galileo had no difficulty in securing his own safety but he could not prevent the index officers from stigmatizing copernicus's doctrine as quote, absurd and infidel unquote, and placing his book with several of galileo's own treatises relative thereto in the index prohibitorum the philosopher submitted to the ecclesiastical dictum but in his heart he rebelled against the judgment when seven years later his friend and patron cardinal barberini ascended the papal throne as urban the eighth he again ventured in a dialogue of the two chief systems of the universe on a comprehensive demonstration of the truth of the copernican views scarcely was the work published sixteen thirty two when the jesuits persuaded the pope that the astronomer had held him up to ridicule galileo had to appear before the inquisition in sixteen thirty three in spite of the contemporaneous and subsequent falsifications in the records of the process it is now proved that galileo was really subjected to torture in accordance with the terms of sentence pronounced on him the permission to print formerly granted to him was declared to have been obtained under false pretenses and the philosopher then in his seventieth year was compelled on bended knee to abjure the copernican doctrine his dialogue was suppressed and he himself was condemned to imprisonment for an indefinite time his sentence was indeed commuted to enforced retirement at his own villa at florence and he never again regained full liberty a victim to manifold bodily sufferings he survived his trial eight years and died in sixteen forty two he had become blind yet had occupied himself unremittingly with scientific work and with the compilation and arrangement of the results of his earlier investigations in italy these could not be published but this was accomplished abroad especially in germany
Like Italian poetry, architecture fell into decay. True beauty, nobility of form, and symmetry of proportions were sacrificed to violent and tasteless effects. The aim now was massiveness in proportions, extravagant richness of ornamentation, and pictorial perspective not at all in harmony with the essential nature of this art. Nothing kept its natural character. The straight lines of the walls were converted into advancing and retiring curves with bulky projections. Architraves were sinews, the gables of open work without purpose, the pillars unreasonably serpentine. Everywhere there was an ostentatious profusion of interlaced foliage, fruit pieces, figures, shells, and emblems of all kinds. Lorenzo Bernini, 1598-1680, is the most prominent representative of this Baroque style. His disciple and rival, Francesco Boromini, sought to surpass him through the exaggeration of tasteless ornamentation and the preposterous medley of all the constructive elements. His example was unfortunately too much followed north of the Alps. In the art of sculpture also Bernini was the despot of his age, and here too all canons of art and good taste were outraged. Extravagant emotions, sensual treatment of the nude, coarse strength in the male figures, coquettish attitudes in those of the females, were too much in keeping with the effeminate life of the Italy of his period. A host of subordinate masters imitated his vicious example. Neither could Italian painting remain entirely unaffected by the prevailing tendency. But here this was by no means so incongruous as in the case of sculpture. There were at this period highly gifted artists who knew how to elevate it from its eccentricities and how to purify and ennoble it. In the beginning of our epoch, the Carracci sought to bring painting back to the study of nature and of the great artists of the 16th century, and they attained the happiest results. But their disciples, Domenico Zampieri, commonly called Domenichino, and Guido Reni, were able to follow this tendency only in their earlier pictures, and soon began to prefer showy ornamentation and a somewhat excessive sweetness of expression. Carlo Dolci is the characteristic representative of this school. Yet these artists, among whom Francesco Barbieri, called Guercino, takes a high prize, knew how to lend a high and enduring value to their works, and to elevate them above the commonplace of mere sensuous effects, by the marvellous blending and power of their colours, by their sense for the beautiful, and by their truth of feeling. In politics, Italy and Spain retired more and more into the background to make room for the predominating influence of France. A great revolution, too, was preparing in the east of Europe, which was to elevate Russia at the expense of Poland and Turkey. On the destiny of Poland, the twenty-five years' reign of the fanatical disciple of Jesuitism, Sigismund III, exercised the most baneful influence. In this time all the germs of corruption were developed, which the predominance of a selfish petty nobility and the brutal violence of the counter-reformation had introduced into the state. For a time, indeed, the valour of her nobles and her abundant population maintained the prestige of Poland abroad. Her intervention in Russian affairs gained for her, at the Peace of Devulino, 1618, Smolensk, Severa, and Chernigov, important provinces which introduced her sway into the very heart of Russia. 
but this success was much more than counterbalanced by the rise of a powerful and popular dynasty in russia endowed with all the freshness and vigour of youth the decline of the welfare of the polish people became more and more rapid wild revolts of the refractory nobles shook the fabric of the state the great rebellion of the voivode nicholas Zebrzydowski, notwithstanding occasional successes of the royal troops was brought to an end only by inglorious concessions on the part of the crown a war with turkey provoked by a contest over the election of a prince in moldavia ended with the peace of hotin in 1621 which conceded to the turks this fortress commanding the most important passage of the dniester as well as the sole right of nominating the moldavian princes scarcely was this war closed when Sigismund involved himself in the great German religious war by taking the side of Catholicism and Austria. This act he expiated by the cession to Gustavus Adolphus of a part of Prussia and of Livonia. After Sigismund's death, although no rival appeared to contest the crown with his son Władysław, it pleased the nobility to institute an interregnum for six months, during which the turbulent elements were free to indulge unchecked in violence plundering and personal feuds finally władysław the fourth was elected a man by no means wanting in courage and military ability when the russian czar michael romanov attempted to take advantage of the change in polish rulers to recover the provinces which he had lost by the peace of devulino władysław completely hemmed in his army and forced it to capitulate a peace concluded at Wiasma confirmed Poland in her possession. Furthermore, the peace of Stumsdorf with Sweden, 1635, gave back to the king, if not Livonia, at least that portion of Prussia lost by his father. But the process of internal decay had made rapid strides from two causes, the predominance of the clergy and the growing usurpations of the nobility. Władysław was an obedient disciple of the church. The Jesuits had already the higher education in their hands, the king made over to them the middle and lower schools as well. Henceforth, in Poland, teaching had to be in strictest accordance with the dicta of the church. The nobles, on their part, broke down the military strength of the kingdom, through a law that the standing army should consist only of a guard of twelve hundred men, the object being to make the ruler wholly subservient to them. The punishment for this selfish and unwise procedure of the nobles was not long in coming. We have already spoken of the constitution of the Cossack state proper, on the middle and lower Dnieper, which developed by Russian and Lithuanian fugitives, had received from King Stephen Bathory a firm organization under Polish suzerainty, yet resting on entirely independent military institutions. It soon acquired considerable power, and its undaunted warriors not content with combating the turks and crim tartars by land took with equal skill and courage to the sea and in their light boats plundered without cessation the shores of asia minor and the balkan peninsula spreading terror into the very harbour of constantinople the port had often complained at warsaw this gave the Poles a pretext for attempting to exterminate not only the political freedom, but also the Greek religion of the Cossacks. First, these were compelled to renounce the election of their hetman, and to submit to the leadership of the Polish commander-in-chief. Then the Jesuits came into the land and shut up their churches, permitting only the worship of the so-called Greek Unionists, who acknowledged the authority of Rome. 
Ultimately Polish nobles settled in the Ukraine and transformed the hitherto free Cossacks into serfs. As these repeatedly rose in revolt, the Poles, in their diet of 1638, took advantage of their rebellion to take from them all personal and political rights. The Cossacks found a leader in Bogdan Chmielnicki, whom a Polish noble had depraved of his land. As Chmielnicki could obtain no justice in Warsaw, he raised the banner of revolt in 1648. Forthwith, the whole Ukraine was under arms. The people of Little Russia, embittered by the Jesuits' zeal for conversion, streamed into the camp of the new hetman. Even their former foes, the Tartars, greedy for Polish spoil, sent help. In the midst of these disorders, King Władysław IV died in 1648. The nobles wrangled for five weeks over the election of a king, to Zamość, with destruction in his train. At length, the exertions and the gold of the queen widow secured the election of John Casimir, brother of the deceased. The last of the house of Vaza, he had been, up to this time, a Jesuit and a cardinal. But the Pope freely released him from the priestly order. He proved, however, by no means equal to the situation. He first sought to win over Chmielnicki, but the Polish nobles would hear nothing of dealings with the despised quote-unquote peasants, and under the leadership of Jeremiah Wisniewiecki, fell suddenly on the unsuspecting Cossacks, massacring them mercilessly. This scandalous outrage fired the Cossacks with the wildest passion for revenge. Bogdan, in alliance with the Tartar Khan, Islam Geray, vanquished the king and his array of nobles in various battles on the plain of Zborov, and so hemmed him in that he was forced to come to terms with the Cossacks. He had to grant to them their former practical independence, and to pay a yearly tribute to the Tartars. The Greco-Catholic metropolis of Kiev received a seat and a vote in the Polish Senate. From these experiences the Polish aristocracy might have drawn the conclusion that the welfare of their fatherland demanded a more centralized government. But in the Diet of 1652 the infamous Liberum Veto was declared a perpetual law. There had never really been any systematic voting in the Diet. The majority had been in the habit of simply shouting down the minority, or, if the latter did not acquiesce gracefully, of compelling them to submission by violence, and occasionally by murder. On one occasion, when the most important measures in regard to the defense of the kingdom against the Cossacks and Tartars were under consideration, one insignificant Lithuanian country member shouted into the hall, I dissent, and forthwith fled, that he might not be compelled to change his vote. His friends and party maintained that, except by unanimous consent, the Diet could arrive at no valid decision, and this view, absurd as it is, they were able to enforce. The Diet separated without result. Thenceforth, any member had the power to nullify the proceedings of the Diet by the use of the Liberum Veto. Never has the passion for personal liberty carried a ruling class to so pernicious an extreme. To the caprice of the individual were sacrificed the peace, the greatness, nay, the very existence of the fatherland. While the nobles in this way doomed the kingdom to weakness and internal dissolution, they revoked the compact entered into with the Cossacks. Above all, the Jesuit party in the Senate would hear nothing of the admission of the schismatic metropolis, Kiev, into the Diet. Provoked by the constant insults and encroachments of the Poles, 
Bogdan Chmielnicki once more took up arms. The Cossacks soon found a mightier ally than the Tartars. In 1654 they finally renounced Polish rule and placed themselves under the protection of their co-religionists, the Russians. The Tsar, Alexis Mikhailovich, gladly agreed to all their conditions. They were to be ruled by their own elected chiefs in accordance with their own laws and were to pay no tribute. Sixty thousand of them were to be enrolled for war service and receive regular pay from the Tsar. Henceforth, this martial people, instead of being a bulwark of Poland against Russia, became the frontier guard of Russia against Poland. With overpowering strength, in which religious zeal played no small part, the Russians and Cossacks repelled the attacks of the Poles, conquered White Russia and Lithuania, and even took the fortress of Lublin in Poland proper. With the political decline of Poland was associated her intellectual decadence. The preceding epoch of the Reformation is regarded as the golden age of Polish literature. Nicholas Ray, 1507-1568, celebrated sometimes the views of the reformers, sometimes the joys of love, and gave his robust humor expression in strongly spiced satires. Of much higher and finer endowments than this gifted country gentleman was John Kochanowski, 1530-1584, the foremost of Poland's older poets. In him, profound knowledge of classical antiquity was associated with deep political feeling and the happiest mastery of expression. As a lyric poet, he was never equaled in Poland. Side by side with these noble authors stand the low-born Sebastian Klonowicz. His revolutionary temper found voice in powerful and racy but bitter verses. Prose was written almost exclusively in Latin. All the more credit, therefore, belongs to Lukas Gurnitsky's Courtier, which was written in Polish, and is an admirable mirror of the usages of the higher society of his time. The exciting political and religious life of the period exerted a stimulating influence on Polish oratory, of which some masterpieces remain. Under the direful rule of Sigismund III, the luster of Polish literature began to grow dim. The burghers were shut out not only from all participation in public life, but also from the higher education. Even the nobles ceased to resort to foreign universities, so perilous, as they believed, for their faith. The University of Krakow rapidly retrograded. The authority of a tutelary and exclusive church interdicted all free investigation and independent thought. The political disorganization and the self-seeking of the ruling caste enfeebled every higher national aspiration. Soon Latin became the dominant literary language. Little except translations from the French appeared in the native tongue. After long continued disorder, Russia had received a firm organization through the installation of the new dynasty of the House of Romanov. The Tsar, Michael Fedorovich, was a well-meaning but weak prince who all his life was subservient to foreign influences. The boyars availed themselves of this weakness to exert a considerable influence on the government, but the situation was changed when, after the peace of Devolino, the Tsar's father, the monk Filaretus, returned from a Polish prison and was nominated by his son to the Patriarchate of Moscow. This energetic man became joint ruler, and caused the year of his rule as spiritual primate to appear on the public documents side by side with that of the temporal potentate, 
a custom continued by his successors in the patriarchal chair of Moscow. The boyars were once more deprived of all influence and reduced to their former state of vassalage. The Council of State was still called together on occasion of high importance, and certain of its members were bold enough to express their views on the questions submitted, but the decision of the Tsar was final. Michael and his successor, Alexis, assembled on several occasions a general council consisting of two nobles and two burghers from each city, but even here the members were only asked to express their opinions without the Tsar being in any way bound by them. This was hardly a representative parliament, as some Slavophiles would have us believe. On the death of Tsar Michael, his son Alexis, a lad of sixteen, ascended the throne. At first the youthful prince was completely dependent on his tutor, the boyar, Boris Morozov, who, misusing his power, espoused his pupil to the daughter of a petty noble, whose sister he himself had married, and heaped offices and pensions upon his own and the Tsarina's relatives. Plundering of the people and scandalous misgovernment through Boris's protégés was now the rule in Russia. Commercial monopolies in the hands of the dominant families hampered traffic and increased the cost of the necessaries of life. At length, the long-suffering populace of Moscow rose in wild revolt, 1648, not against the Tsar, but against his officials, and struck down a number of them. Alexis rescued Moscow with difficulty and had to banish him from his presence and exclude him from all public offices. Alexis thereupon appointed a commission of nobles and ecclesiastics to compile a new code of laws, July 1648, based on the rights of the church, former edicts of the Tsar, and decisions of the boyars. A national convention in October 1648 recognized the new code, which was then promulgated in all lands under the scepter of the Tsar. Yet notwithstanding this wise and popular measure, the land did not attain peace. Official dishonesty provoked new risings in Novgorod and Pskov in 1650, some of which had to be suppressed by armed force. To cut off the source of such outbreaks, the Tsar constituted a new board, which, under various names, had continued to the present day, being now known as the Chamber of Secret Affairs. To it was entrusted the unconditional execution of the Tsar's decrees. Only insignificant persons were called to it, for they would be blind tools of the sovereign authority, and thus paved the way for unconditional and unlimited absolutism. This strengthening of the power of the Tsar was of all the more importance because Russia was soon involved in a long and decisive conflict with Poland. The Cossack War sounded the signal. Among the results were the lasting subjugation of Poland and the ultimate elevation of Russia to be the foremost eastern power. This change was made possible by the decadence of the Ottoman Empire, which showed itself in all departments of government, and first of that in finance. In the time of Sultan Soliman the Great, a million ducats, about $9,677,400, could be deposited a year in the treasury as surplus. Under his successor, conditions were reversed. The expenditure soon exceeded the income by as much as one-fourth. Thefts and embezzlements in all branches cooperated with the cupidity of the sultans, who needed large sums for their pleasures, to empty the treasury. Peculation was organized into the system. The highest offices, even the governorships of whole provinces, 
the princely dignity in Moldavia and in Wallachia, were sold at auction to the highest bidders. No wonder that the purchasers sought to make up for this outlay by exactions from the miserable subjects, who, with no one beneath them to be preyed upon, had to bear the whole intolerable burden. The oppressive burden of the taxes, the ignorance and indifference of the ephemeral officials, produced widespread poverty, misery, and depopulation. The husbandman cultivated only as many acres as would meet his barest needs, for he knew that any surplus would be taken from him by violence. In all quarters were to be seen deserted homesteads and houses falling to ruin. The enormous extent of the Ottoman Empire, the length of whose frontier was estimated at about 15,000 miles, was an element of weakness rather than strength. In Asia, the empire comprehended Anatolia, Armenia, Mesopotamia, Syria, Palestine, Arabia. In Africa, Egypt, Tripoli, Tunis, Algiers. In Europe, Thrace, Bulgaria, Moldavia, Wallachia, Transylvania, the greater part of Hungary, Bosnia, Serbia, Dalmatia, Albania, Macedonia, and Greece with the archipelago. The fairest and most fertile districts of three continents, from the Tigris to the Middle Danube and almost to the Pillars of Hercules, were subject to the sultans, who, instead of using their unbounded resources to make themselves masters of the world, merely spread death and ruin over one's blooming and vigorous empires. In the families of the sultans, constant strifes and bloody conflicts arose among the wives, or among their sons, or between the sons and their father. Even under the great Solomon, such conflicts had taken place. The grand viziers began to have weightier influence in state affairs than the sultans themselves, who succumbed more and more to the intrigues of the harem. The personal council of the vizier constituted the sublime port, the highest political authority. The most illustrious of the viziers were Mohammed Sokolli, who, through the Christian origin, rose under Soliman to this foremost position, and under Selim II became all-powerful. It was due to him that Turkey, under the weak Selim, continued on the whole to maintain its position. Sokolli's ability, uprightness, and toleration for his former fellow-believers, the Christians, were commended by all his well-informed contemporaries. After ruling for fourteen years, he fell in 1579 by the dagger of a dervish to whom he did not appear sufficiently fanatical. Under the Grand Vizier, and in conjunction with him, ruled the Divan, a body composed of the highest officials of the empire, and meeting regularly four times a week for the consideration of matters of policy, administration, and justice. To it everyone could submit his case. Its decisions required confirmation by the sultan, but this was seldom withheld. The military power of Turkey rested on its feudal cavalry, every warrior being hereditary possessor of a fief, larger or smaller. The number of these sipahi, spahis, amounted to at least 200,000, organized by districts, sanjaks, under sanjak bays. These, again, were organized into provinces, eyalets under Baylor base, or governors, the military leaders being also the civil administrators of their respective districts. The Spahis laid the foundation of Turkey's greatness, but with increasing riches and effeminacy, they lost their warlike spirit. Records was now had to paid Spahis, at first merely a sort of bodyguard, 
but latterly increased in number to 40,000 heavy-armed horsemen. To these must be added the irregular cavalry, who, instead of receiving pay, remunerated themselves by pillaging, and the Tartar, Moldavo-Wallachian, Georgian, and other auxiliaries. The total number of these horsemen was, in the 17th century, more than 220,000, and before firearms were perfected, they were the main support of Turkey's military supremacy. Meanwhile, a reliable infantry was needed. This was by preference composed of Christian boys who had been carried off from their parents, and who, after being trained in Islamism and subjected to discipline, were drafted into the corps of Janissaries. In 1638, under Murad IV, this compulsory enlistment was abolished, and even after, the corps consisted exclusively of volunteers. The service was severe and for life, but the position was held in honor and was well paid. Originally, the corps had been distinguished for its brotherly spirit, order, morality, and devoted heroism, but deterioration came with the admission of young Turks, to whom the privilege of marriage could not be denied, as it had been to the stolen offspring of Christians. Thus the military power of Turkey degenerated rapidly. The more disorganized the state of the exchequer, and the more irregularly the soldiers were paid, the more frequent were the revolts that sometimes led to bloody catastrophes. After the Battle of Lepanto, matters went even worse with the Turkish navy. The fleets lost confidence, and no longer ventured out of the harbours. The Turks, brave and enterprising by land, had ever felt themselves awkward and timid at sea. The poverty of the government also wrought evil. In the first half of the 17th century, the Turkish navy was reduced to 50 ships, which were fit only for the pettiest services. It must be admitted that the Osmanlis did not understand how to take advantage of their triumphs on European soil so as to evolve an enduring national organization. Rigid and severe in its forms, the government was always alien and hostile to its subject races. Culture remained the property of the few. Individual sultans favored learning, but irrespective of some historical works, this was altogether of a religious character. There is a striking contrast between the literary barrenness of Turkey and the brilliant intellectual development that once distinguished their Arabian and Persian fellow believers. In the domain of politics, the condition of affairs was similar. Legislation was stationary, for it could not deviate an iota from the principles laid down in the Koran. The Christian subjects of the Turks were treated as mere cattle. No effects were made to convert them, although this would have greatly strengthened Turkey in the Balkan Peninsula and along the Danube. Nay, from pure selfishness, some sultans forbade conversions in large numbers to Islam, this would have involved the loss of the poll tax imposed on Christians and the conscription of their children. Revolts among the Christians were frequent, and were crushed only by the most brutal violence. The most striking proof of the Turks' incapacity for rule is the fact that they could dispense with the despised unbelievers neither in the administration nor in the army. Their hosts were mainly recruited from captive Christian children, and the higher administrative offices were almost exclusively occupied by Christians. Only by virtue of this peculiar system was Turkey able to maintain her integrity till toward the end of the 17th century. On the death of the debauchee Selim II in 1574, 
Mohamed Sokoli was successful in placing Selim's eldest son, Murad III, on the throne. He inaugurated his reign, in accordance with the ghastly Ottoman custom, by slaying his younger brothers. He soon plunged into the enervating excesses of the harem, and showed zeal for nothing save the scandalous plunderings of his subjects. By this plundering he obtained the means for the constant largesses by which the fidelity of his troops was secured. Yet in spite of the deplorable conduct of the administration, his adventurous provincial governors were able to extend his domains in Hungary at the cost of Austria. Meanwhile another war broke out, and this time with the oriental rival of the Ottoman Empire, Persia, 1578. This state was hostile to Turkey, not only on political grounds, but also on religious ones. The Persian sect of Shiites and the Turkish sect of Sunnites hated each other. After a war of twelve years, peace was concluded in 1590, on terms highly honorable for the Osmanlis. Persia ceded to them the whole of Georgia, as well as the provinces on the southwest coast of the Caspian. Yet, notwithstanding this brilliant result, the Persian campaigns were disastrous for the Turks. Their best armies, to the number, it is said, of 600,000 men, were destroyed, and their finances reduced to a state of hopeless disorder. The ill effects appeared prominently when the war against Emperor Rudolf II broke out anew in 1593. In this campaign, the Turks suffered numerous defeats, and had it not been for the Emperor's frenzied passion for persecution and the risings of the Hungarians and Transylvanians under Bochkai, the port would have suffered heavy losses in the peace of Zsitva Torok in 1607. Meantime, Murad III had been replaced by his son, Mohammed III, and he by his brother, Ahmed I. But these insignificant princes exerted no material influence upon the course of political and military events. Ahmed soon found a formidable foe in the energetic and gifted Shah of Persia, Abbas the Great. This prince undertook to wrest from the Turks their conquests in the last war, and the real weakness of the Ottoman Empire was revealed. In the campaign from 1604 to 1619, all that the Turks had acquired since 1590 was lost. The Persian wars had exhausted the best strength of the state. The extent to which the decadence of the Turkish government had gone is shown by the fact that, on the death of Ahmed, in 1617, the Divan, that it might order matters at its own discretion, elevated his imbecile brother, Mustafa, to the throne. In three months he was deposed in favor of Osman II, the eldest son of Ahmed I. The new sultan was a high-spirited, chivalric youth, inspired above all with the ambition to restore the empire and his race to their ancient glory. But his warlike projects were not favored by the indolent Spahis and Janissaries. The failure of a campaign against Poland heightened the discontent. The Grand Vizier, the Minister of War, and other high functionaries and officers were massacred by the maddened soldiery. Finally, Osman himself shared their fate, the first case of regicide in Turkish history. The imbecile Mustafa was replaced on the throne, where he conducted himself in the most insane manner. At length, the divan and the army alike recognized that an end must be put to such a deplorable condition of affairs. In 1623, 
Mustafa was relegated to the harem where he lived in obscurity for sixteen years, and Osman's brother, Murat IV, was set in his place. Murat, though, like his murdered brother, a youth of energy and enterprise, gave way without restraint to his sensual passions, and thus ultimately wrecked himself. He humbled the insolent arrogance of the Janissaries by terrible and repeated executions. External affairs soon demanded his active intervention. Several Asiatic pashas rose in revolt, and Shah Abbas the Great of Persia was ready to take advantage of these turmoils to extend his own dominions. In 1623 he made himself master of Baghdad, the capital of Mesopotamia, and the ancient residence of the Caliphs, and forthwith proceeded to further conquests. In 1628, luckily for the Osmanlis, he died, and his son, Sefi, was of far inferior capacity. Sultan Murat now undertook war in person against Persia, and conducted it with the fierce energy characteristic of his nature. He retook Erivan, Tabriz, and Van, and finally, in 1638, stormed Baghdad, which was now little more than a heap of ruins. In the next year, the long-protracted Persian war was brought to a close by a peace that left affairs very much as they were before it broke out. Murat now thought of turning his victorious arms against Christian Europe, which was rent by numberless conflicts. Christendom trembled at the threatening danger when, in 1640, the Sultan died, worn out prematurely by his debaucheries and passions. He had restored discipline and confidence to his army, and order to his finances, but these reforms were based merely on fear, and everything depended on the character of those who should hereafter hold the reins of government. Ibrahim, Murat's youngest brother, who succeeded to the throne, was an innervated weakling. He had, however, able ministers who maintained the prestige of Turkey abroad, reorganized the fleet, and began in 1645 a war with Venice for the possession of Crete. In 1648, Ibrahim was murdered by the Janissaries, who thereupon placed his youthful son, Mohammed IV, upon the throne. The real masters of the empire were now the Janissaries, like the Praetorian guards in ancient Rome, and before their power, both the sovereign and his ministers trembled. The destruction of the state seemed imminent, but it was averted by a race of hereditary grand viziers, who, beginning with Mohammed Kuprili, in 1656, and holding office for a quarter of a century, secured for the Ottoman Empire a new lease of life. The alliance with France under Louis XIV, effected at this time, lends a fictitious importance to the position of Turkey in European affairs in the middle of the 17th century. End of Europe in the Middle Ages in the 17th Century, Part 2, by Martin Philipson.